Well, it's time uh, for me to get back on the saddle after being off it for quite a few months. And uh, before restarting our series on Daniel, uh, we're going to have a, a little bit of a, of a break. Uh, we might restart next week, we'll see. Uh, I'll keep you surprised. But this morning we're going to look at Psalm 139. It's been uh, about 10 years since I looked closely at this at this beautiful psalm. In, we did a series in many of the psalms, about 50 psalms uh, uh, quite a while ago. And this is one of the, the great psalms in the Bible, and for good reason. So the title this morning is, This is Our God. And it was written by David, who was a musician. It was written to the choir master or the, or the director of music. So this psalm would have been written to, to Elizabeth. Who, who led worship by the king himself. So if the king writes the psalm, you have to sing it, right? You have to put music to it. So it was, it was part of their regular worship. And, and it would not be surprising if Jesus himself sung this psalm as, as he was growing up as well. And note that the declaration in Psalm 19 the Psalm 19 declaration that we read earlier starts off with the heavens declare the glory of God. This is the macro view of the vastness of God's creation. The big macro things that God has made that I was able to, to witness so, so beautiful, so beautifully done. I mean, yeah, anyway, there'll be time to show some photos and all of that. But you get taken, you get lost in, in what a beautiful world that God has made. But now in Psalm 139, we are in awe and wonder of the greatness of God in the micro, in the small, personal, individual things of human life. It's intensely personal. So rather than looking through the telescope and peering through the stars, we grab a microscope and go in. We go the other way. And David talks about more than that. He talks about the past, he talks about the present, and he talks about the future, which is unknown to him, but is known to God. But this beautiful psalm goes even deeper than that, if that is possible, because it it moves from the realm, the realm of the, the physical and measurable to the more complex aspect, the, the complex aspect of our thought life. How do you measure that? So this is why this, this psalm is, is very personal and it's as deep as it gets when it comes to a personal and intimate relationship with our Creator God. So for this and many other reasons, this psalm is, is very important in the whole field of theology. And what is theology? Theology is, is simply the, the knowledge of God, the study and knowledge of God. And we live in a world today where many people are so lost and confused about their own personal identity. There are many studies that have been done about the self and who am I? What am I supposed to be doing and what happens after I die? 
And the answer to all those questions is, is in the scriptures. So if you don't know that, where you came from, what you're supposed to be doing, who you are and where you'd be going, then of course you're going to be lost. And precisely as, as people move further and further away from God and, and push him further and further away from our lives, the more lost we will be. But as we get to know God, we get to know ourselves. We get to find meaning, purpose. What is it that I'm supposed to be doing in these years, these short years that God has given me? So I'm going to use some big words and I'll try to explain them, but uh, you'll follow it through. So first of all, he, our God, he is omniscient. Verses 1 to 6, he is omniscient. I'll explain that. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know me when I sit down, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all, all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem in, behind, before, you have your hand upon me. And what can you say? Such knowledge is just too wonderful for me, too too lofty. I can't understand this. So when theologians talk about the omniscience of God, they are referring to his all-seeing knowledge. He knows everything about everything, which means he knows everything about you and me. God knows you better than your mum, your dad, your doctor, your psychologist. In fact, he knows you better than you know yourself. It is said that we have about 10,000 thoughts a day. And God knows every one of them. You multiply that by how many people live on earth now? 8 billion? Just multiply that and, and it's an astronomical thought. How, how on earth? He knows what you are thinking right now. You're probably thinking, how long is this sermon going to go through? You know? The thoughts you had yesterday, the day before, the thoughts you will have tomorrow, your anxieties, your worries, he knows all about them. And no one knows the intentions of our hearts like God. So David starts and concludes this psalm acknowledging that God searches our hearts. He starts off by saying, you have searched me and you know me. And he will conclude the psalm with similar words. So rather than being threatened or scared about this aspect of God, for the believer this is actually an aspect of a, a reason for praise and Adoration. So let's just get it out there. So if you're wondering on whether you should confess your sins in detail to God, just tell them. Just spell it out to him. He already knows about it because he was there 
when you thought about them or even before you thought about them and then he was there when you committed them. To confess your sin means to agree with God, his assessment of your condition. You don't try and explain it away. You just simply, you don't try and redefine it, excuse it, just tell it like it is. He says it's a sin. You agree with him it's a sin. So let go of your pride, repent, and he will forgive. That is grace. He's omniscient. Then in verses 7 to 12, he is omnipresent. Where can I go from your spirit, he says. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. There is this futile attempt that somehow we can try and escape from God. And, and this idea is as old as the Garden of Eden, isn't it? When Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. And since then there have been quite a few who have tried to run away from God. Elijah, Jonah, even Peter after the the rooster crowed and he was found out. He went fishing. And David, for many years, he had to hide with his men. He had to hide from Saul who was trying to kill him. But he knew that he couldn't do the same with God. He tried to hide his adultery with Bathsheba, but God knew all about it and held him to account. In God's mercy, he forgave him. So let me ask, are we trying to hide something from God? Is it big? Is it small? Well, it doesn't matter because all sin makes us guilty. And omni, when we say omni, And present, it means omni means all, so he is present everywhere. He's everywhere in the universe at the same time. You know, at at times it feels like, you know, our priorities, we're called in different directions, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and and women seem to be a lot better at this than, than men. They can be on the phone, they can tend the baby, they can, you know, get the cooking done. And uh, they tend to be just, you know, one thing, but I've got to do this. God can do everything at the same time. It's pretty special, isn't it? God is never stretched. He's never stretched too thinly, but there's only a little bit of him because he's too busy doing everything else. No, because God is spirit, he's everywhere at once. We can't fully comprehend that, but then again, we're not God. But David could understand it. He explained it. This is what it's like. Now, that does not mean that God is everything. That this is God. That this is God. God is the carpet. That just leads to the worship of nature, that God is the tree, he's the fruit, he's the bird. It's called pantheism. 
The idea that all creation is a part of God and if you add us all together, all the plants and all the rocks and all the animals, we all together make up the sum total of God. But when everything is God, ultimately there is no God. So don't confuse the creator with his creation. He is everywhere, but he's not everything. But God is there in the joy, in the tears, in the rainbow and the storm and the drought and the flood. And because I know that, God is always with me. He is with me. And then I can depend on him no matter what I face. God is in front of us. He is behind us. This is what he said. He hems me in. He is around me. An ever-present God. As David said, such knowledge, again, is too wonderful for me to try to understand. I just... Can't get my head around it. And then in verses 13 to 16, he is creator. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And then in verse 16, your eyes, they saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How could David come up with all this stuff? Well, it's divine revelation. You can't come up with this stuff. This is, this is incredible what he's saying here, what he's declaring. And, and these are some of the most beautiful verses to consider in, 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 in respect to God's attention to detail. Now, since David lived a thousand years before Christ, like three thousand years ago, there were no microscopes. There was no understanding of the microbiology, and then we, he didn't look inside the cell to consider how all that stuff works. Enzymes and proteins. Yet. He was so impressed with the wonder of God's gift of life that he spoke of it as being woven together delicately in the womb. He's using the image of a, of a, of a craftsman. Um, in Turkey, I went into a shop and they saw somebody making the, the carpets and very skillfully, these are five... $10,000 carpets, right? Thread by thread, colour by colour, putting it all together. And it takes about seven or eight months to make one of them. What David is, is saying is, I didn't just happen. I didn't just happen. I'm, I'm not a, a product of, of chance and, and being lucky. I'm not an accident, I have value, I have worth because you, God, made 
me. You made me. And and so these words are shouting at us, they're screaming at us about the dignity of human life. From the womb to the tomb. It's, we are very, very special. And then the human body is this this marvellous work of bioengineering. It's no accident that the various types of tissues and cells and organ systems came together and and formed. They start with two separate cells that come together and form a breathing, thinking, feeling, seeing, walking, talking, living human being. Most most of us don't realise just how intricate and wondrous our bodies really are. And it's a shame that those people who do study it and do know it are too ashamed to actually acknowledge that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Long before the microscopes, the great St. Augustine, he once said, people travel to wonder at the height of mountains, which is what I did, and at the huge waves of the sea, and the long courses of the rivers, saw some of that, and the vast compass of the oceans, at the circular motion of the stars, he says, and they pass by themselves without wondering. They look at everything that is out there, and they can't simply just look at the mirror and say, wow, They pass by themselves without wondering. Let me just give you some figures too. Uh, Our DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 metres of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. A nucleus is 6 microns long. And it isn't simply stuffed, you know, like your sleeping bag, uh, but it's actually folded in carefully, like a parachute. if, If it's folded one way, the cell becomes a skin cell. If another way, a liver cell, and so forth. To write out the information in one cell would take one cell, one cell, To write out the information in one cell would take 300 books, each volume 500 pages thick. One cell. Please tell me that's an accident. The the, the human body contains enough DNA that if it was stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. So with all this growing knowledge of the human body, it's, it's, I struggle to understand how intelligent people continue to believe that we are simply the product of chance and time. They refuse to accept the stamp on our foreheads which says, made, not in China, not in Australia, made by God. 
the craftsman. And once you try and remove that, that stamp, you have no reason to believe that we have any greater value than any other living creature that is out there, than a toad or a, or a bird or anything. And this is why on the one hand we want to protect the whales, and yet on the other hand abort human life because we've lost the sense of meaning and the sacredness and dignity of human life. And when that type of thinking takes hold, a society is on a downward downward road that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. And one of the problems that we have is that society has simply just accepted, was that, yeah, yeah, accepted this whole idea of which is philosophically is called utilitarianism. Which is, and utilitarianism is the belief that people are valuable as long as they are useful. If people cease to be useful, they cease to be valuable. So a good example of this is the game that is sometimes played. It's a hypothetical game that, that goes like this, that if, if a plane had ten people going down and you only had four parachutes, and you had engineers, doctors, philosophers, pastors, and whatever, and says, who will, be, who will you give the four parachutes to, to save them, and just let the other ones die? That's, that's an example of being utilitarian. And increasingly, decisions are made, medical care, mental care, on the usefulness of the individual, so if they weren't useful, they aren't valuable. Human worth is devalued. So this has led to the legalisation of euthanasia, which has started with the aged and the terminally ill, but as has happened in many countries of Europe, It soon spreads to those, even teenagers, who feel depressed. They don't want to live anymore, for whatever reason. And as long as they have two or three doctors who agree, they're given the opportunity to terminate their life. Now, God condemns that type of thinking because to God, all mankind has value. Some of us are old, weak, intellectually challenged. But if our value was set by society, then yes, I would agree with you. There, there is a scale of how useful you could be according to our economic system and happiness and whatever you want to call it. But if your value depends on our creator, then there is no question. We're all special fearfully and wonderfully made from the womb to the tomb. And, and our own self-worth is increased in direct relation to how we see God and we allow him to use us for his purposes. So David's words here suddenly become an understatement about how fearfully, wonderfully made we are. 
Because he made me and you. What is our God like? He's also caring, verses 17 to 18. He's caring. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. So David moves from his his own thoughts to thinking about God's thoughts toward him. And God's thoughts towards him are also precious. So it's two-way assessment here. Many verses in the, in the Bible speak to us of God's love for us. Here is one of them from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31 verse 3, which says, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. In the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave. God didn't love us if he didn't care. Why would he do that? And it is sad that many people, including Christians, increasingly today with the advent of the smartphone and social media, seem to place their entire self-worth on what they look like and how others perceive them. Throughout my wanderings, in a lot of places, whether it's Milan or whether it's in front of a castle, whatever it is, there it is, a young girl posing so all her friends could click and, you know, if nobody liked it, then the self-worth is diminished because nobody likes what they put up there. Is that really how you assess your, whether your life is worth or not, depending on how many likes you have? And it's this modern malaise that, that of, because suddenly the how you see yourself is how you see, you project that to God and, and you move further away from the true assessment. We need to see that God loves us with a love that is beyond human understanding. It's beyond the likes that you get. It's beyond the the phone calls that you receive. He's the one that will love you more than you know. He is merciful, he is patient. But listen to this, that he doesn't give us unlimited license to do as we please and to do our own thing. Let's not mistake that. His grace is sufficient for all our needs and his mercy endures forever. But he will not put up with sin forever. Sin has to be judged because it goes against his standards. You can't just simply do what you feel like. And that's what we look at in these verses, verses 19 to 24. He is righteous. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent, your adversaries misuse your name. 
Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and and know my heart. Test me and, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. Now, if, if many Bible readings stop at, at, the, uh, at verse 18 because these, these verses seem to be like a discordant note. It's like you're playing beautiful music and suddenly Elizabeth misses a note and says, ugh. Where did that come from? Um, and, and to many uh, scholars and others who have studied the Psalms, they say, well, maybe this wasn't written, this part of it wasn't written by David and somebody else just put it in there. While other scholars try and perform what I call doctrinal gymnastics, they sort of do a a double twist with a double pike, you know, type of thing in order to, oh, that's what it is. Well, let's just read the text as, as we have it, because that's the intention of it. And if they sang it as a song, that's how it is. It's inspired text like the rest of the Bible. So, so what's going on here? Firstly, this is what is called an imprecatory prayer, where, where the psalmist is calling, what's an imprecation? An imprecation is calling for judgment, a curse, if you will, on God's enemies. And there are 30 psalms which fit the category of an imprecatory psalm. So let's be careful here because what we, a lot of people just jump straight away to the New Testament and they play it against the Old Testament. But let's not be too haste in doing that because similar words are found in the New Testament as well. But what do you mean? I thought, you know. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, and listen to this, let them be under God's curse. That is an imprecation. In Revelations we read, and these are the martyrs, those who have died for the gospel, those who have been martyred over thousands of years, all of those believers who have given their life for Christ and they are pleading they are pleading there this is the picture in Revelations it's it's quite incredible really and they called these are the martyrs, they called in a loud voice, how long sovereign Lord holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood wow So it is an imprecative prayer. Secondly, David is asking God to deal with it. He's not going to take matters into his own hands. He's not going to do a Rambo here. Okay? This is for God to deal with it. And, and, And Paul was quoting the Old Testament when he said, in Romans 12:19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, 
says the Lord. Thirdly, evil is personified. Now let's, let's be frank here that it's too easy sometimes when we quote the cliche, right? We say, hate the sin but love the sinner. But evil, how it displays itself, it's not some abstract notion that is out there that you study and, and sort of say, yeah, that's evil and that's evil. No, evil usually displays itself in people who do evil things. Visited the uh, concentration camp in Austria. And it's all there. Well, some of the buildings have been demolished, but nobody spoke. There were people walking through the concentration camp. 70,000 people died there. The shower's there. The ovens are still there. And nobody says a word. It's almost like you're walking on sacred ground because you're witnessing. You are, you, you are there. What it would have been like for these people who died there. And it's only, it's what, 75 years ago? Not all that long ago. It's not like saying, well, these people didn't know what they were doing. No, they were prehistoric people. No, no, no. They just, you know, Germany is the most advanced people of their time, I think. It's, it's, and it was shown decisions that were made. Evil was displayed in people who did evil things. And I think this is why it's hard for us to, to understand. But so, you know, it's easy to say, "Hate the sin, but love the sinner." Yes, but our justice system prosecutes the evildoer, not the concept of evil. It's not like a judge in prosecuting your case says, "Well, I condemn evil, but you can go free." No, whoever did the deed has to suffer the consequences. The same with God. Fourthly, holiness demands a hatred of sin and evil. The closer we get to God, the more intolerance we have for evil. The flip side is that the the more we move away from God, the more tolerant and accepting we become to evil and those who do it. Oh, come on, man. Don't, Don't worry about it. It's okay. Just let them be. And, and we have to say that for, for a large degree in our society, what I've witnessed in Europe is that it's a case of the frog in the kettle. Frog in the kettle. You know, that slowly the temperature rises, the frog is in, inside, and before he realises that the frog in the kettle is cooked because the temperature rises gradually. I was in uh, Berlin, this beautiful park. Berlin's a beautiful city. 
yeah, a lot of history, obviously, but beautiful park, beautiful area, so clean, everything. You walk through a park, double, triple lane highway, bicycle lanes, kids playing on one side, and on this side, naked men, totally sunbaking in the sun, out in the open, middle of the day, not hiding from anyone. I was like, you're kidding. You're kidding. Have we come so accustomed that it's okay? Are you serious? Are we no longer disturbed or appalled by what is happening? Fifthly, we have to ask God to look into our own heart. So, so David doesn't, doesn't just look at others, but he also asks for God to search, to look, to peer into his own heart, to search for the evil within him. It's easy to point fingers at everybody else, right? A prideful person would say, Go ahead, search me, I've done nothing wrong. You won't find any wickedness in me. King David knew the ways of God. He experienced the ways of God in judgment. He knew he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But as he got closer to God, as he repented, he said, Lord, you know, please search my heart. Just after he did that imprecation, all those words, all those verses, and says, you know, Destroy the evildoers, he said. But what about me? Look into my own heart. If there is, is there evil within me? And sixthly, grace only for the penitent, for the repentant. Jesus, when he, when he began his ministry, Mark chapter 1 quotes Jesus saying, Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' cry. Repent and believe the gospel. And last month I witnessed a whole month of pride in Europe, and boy, did I witness it. It was everywhere. The very sin that God condemns is celebrated in the West in open defiance of our Creator because we think we know better. With all our alternative lifestyles, we have to tolerate this. Pride. We ask for forgiveness for stuff that happened 200 years ago that we didn't commit, and yet we can't ask, we can't repent and ask for forgiveness for sins that we personally commit 20 seconds ago. How does that work? say sorry, we forgiveness for 200 years ago, but we can't repent and say sorry for something that it's a pride. Charles Spurgeon said this about judgment. If you haven't looked at Christ on the cross, you will have to look at him on the throne with great trembling. The sacrificial death of Christ will be brought before the eyes of all who refuse to accept his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Don't 
discard, don't pass by his offer of forgiveness, grace. But you need to have come to him with humility, with a repentant heart. So in conclusion, the Christian needs to always see his or her worth by meditating, I think, on on these, these attributes of God. And these are just some of the attributes of God, obviously. There are many more. But here are some questions to help us. Uh, Do you see yourself the same way that God sees you? Where do you find yourself worth? Is there some feature we wish God had designed differently in us? I wish I was a man. I wish I was a woman. I wish I was younger. I wish I was older. I wish I was more intelligent. I I definitely want that one. I wish I was prettier. No need there, I'm pretty enough. (laughs) I think there will come a time we we will say, I wish I had more days. All the days are numbered. I wish this, I wish that. Have we come to a place where we can give God thanks for how wonderfully he made us? And say, thank you, Lord, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. This is a bit more challenging. Have we grown accustomed to the evil that is out there? Or does it shock us? Does it, you know, impact us? And then, with this last question, have we asked God to search our own hearts for the evil that is within us and ask for his forgiveness and to draw us closer to the cross that put Jesus, because our sins put Jesus on the cross. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the wonder of your grace and your mercy. That you speak to us, Lord, truth through your words. Help us, Lord, to understand this. And through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to convict us of sin and to accept the gift of grace, Lord, that you offer to the repentant heart. Help us, Lord, to let go of our pride and self-will and submit to you, Lord, in all things. Help us, Lord, to be more and more like Jesus, to want to be more and more like Jesus, our Saviour, who gave it all for us. And we praise you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.